In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. No other single program represents the generosity of the American people nor U.S. leadership more than the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, also known as PEPFAR. Since 2003, the United States government has invested over $90 billion in the global HIV-AIDS response through PEPFAR, saving more than 17 million lives and transforming the social and economic fabric of entire countries. Today, we're speaking with PEPFAR's leader, Ambassador Deborah Burks. Ambassador Burks has had an exceptional career spanning multiple health areas and agencies. She started her career as a physician in the United States Army, rising to the rank of colonel. While at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, she helped lead one of the most influential HIV vaccine trials in history, which provided the first supporting evidence of any vaccine's potential effectiveness in preventing HIV infection. She also served as the director of CDC's Division of Global HIV AIDS from 2005 to 2014 where she committed to building local capacity and strengthening quality services and systems. Ambassador Burks has been at PEPFAR for nearly six years and has bridged two very different presidential administrations while sustaining broad bipartisan support. Under her leadership, PEPFAR has taken on two momentous challenges, the unique needs of adolescent girls and young women and the need for partner governments to build accountability through performance and data. Ambassador Burks, thanks so much for being here. I wanted to ask you, despite major declines in new HIV infections globally, adolescent girls and young women continue to be disproportionately affected in many places. In fact, young women are up to 14 times more likely to become HIV infected than their male counterparts. You've addressed this issue head on with the DREAMS partnership. Can you tell us more about that? Well, it stands for Determined, Resilient, Empowered, AIDS-Free, Mentored, and Safe. And I think that really sums it up. It was looking at the lives of young women and the issues that they face and ensuring that we had structural interventions to address their vulnerabilities. And I think what was originally very much focused on serving young women's needs and putting the young women at the center, I think what we've learned is these young women have agency. And when you give them the ability to speak and you empower them to be able to be heard, they never go back. What are the three or four major, most important things that you're providing beyond the the basic health interventions that make this difference or tailoring the response to the needs of, of individual young women and girls? Well, there's a whole set of interventions focused on serving the young woman based on what they need, keeping them in school, ensuring that they have the wherewithal and the financial wherewithal to stay in school, ensuring that they develop entrepreneurial skills um, and learn how to build businesses and capability. But it also addresses issues at the community level. 
will to really decrease the risk to young women, to decrease the gender-based violence, to decrease the sexual violence, create an environment where young women are valued. Mm-hmm. Valued for being young women and um, people seeing value in young women being in the community and the leaders that leadership that young women can provide. So it's also then focused on the family and ensuring that there's good parenting and good support to the young women. So the young woman is the center, but we understand that other things have to change around them if we're going to deal with what you talked about, it being 14 times greater. And when you talk about their male cohort, most of the male cohort under 20 has HIV prevalence is way under one. So they clearly are not at risk from women. The women are at risk from older men. And I think that's really what we're trying to figure out, why why that occurs, what need is being met. And I think as we create the ability for young women to meet their needs without some of the risk behaviors that they had to engage on, just to have fundamental food and access to schooling and food and school fees and books, that it's really about changing their lives to create a future that we all can be proud of. So what you're trying to do is offer a different universe to these young women where they can disengage from that kind of intergenerational sexual relationship. Correct. And still be able to feel like they're going to have a successful life. Correct. You know, that they're not giving up anything, that they're going to have a fully fulfilled and have the education that they want and the opportunities that they need. And I think that's really critical. You're in 15 countries. We talked earlier in the day about the results coming in from KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. Tell us a little bit about where you're seeing these results and how do you know that you're achieving success? So from the beginning, I think, you know, PEPFAR, we're very data-driven, but not data just to have data, data that really speaks to how you have to continue to evolve the program. And so we worked very hard to really understand um, information in very tight age bands because a 14-year-old is very different than a 19-year-old, different from a 24-year-old, different than a 30-year-old. And I think um, we've learned from the private sector how to segment populations and have very clear information coming from them. So across the board in DREAMS, so we created very tight, stringent evaluations. And I'm really proud of the partnership because the Bill and Melinda Gates also funded independent pop council work to Mm -hmm. really provide continuous feedback and to evaluate the program. And we think that's always important to have independent um, validation. But we looked at district level rates of new infections in young women. And of course, we had a quite an established baseline because we had been collecting information uh, by age group for almost the last seven years. So for the last four years of dreams and building on that baseline, we were able to look at district level changes in diagnosis of new infections in young women. And I think the reason we're confident to move forward with that significant increase in investment that we made with the American taxpayer dollars, we take taxpayer dollars very seriously. And so till we really had the evidence based, we weren't willing to dramatically expand dreams. But I think now that all districts show a decline, that the majority, about 70% or more, have declines way greater than 25%, and almost 25% of districts greater than a 40% decline in new infections just in three years of execution. We think we have the evidence base now to take this at to full scale. And one of the tricks is going to be getting the governments in these countries to see the merits of adopting this approach, right? I mean, you can't, we can't carry this agenda indefinitely. Correct. 
So where are you seeing countries stepping forward and saying, yes, you've proven this, this has the ability to transform lives, and we're going to invest ourselves in this? Well, outside of Swaziland and um, South Africa, secondary school is not free. And that probably would make the biggest impact on mm -hmm. young women's lives. And so we're working very closely with governments. We have that large demonstration project across country in Malawi mm -hmm. to really show that keeping young women in schools dramatically decrease um, the risk of HIV. South Africa and Swaziland already have secondary school. So then it's a matter of really creating a roadmap and a pathway to employment. And I think that's why we're very excited about the Ivanka Trump initiative to mm -hmm. really give young women the opportunity to be schooled and have the schooling opportunity, but then translate into entrepreneurialships and the ability to really have long-term employment. And that's what young women want. They want to be able to provide for their families. And I think tackling that at the level of the legal framework that is needed to be successful in many countries, young women can't have their own bank account. They have to have a male co-signer or they can't open their own business. They mm -hmm. have to have a male co-signer. I mean, these are arcane laws that have to be changed and so women can thrive. And I think working on the legal policy framework at the same time, working with the private sector to ensure that there's those employment opportunities. I think what happened in many parts of the world, we had the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. And I think when we really focused on improving under five survival, we did. And it went, under five survival improved by 85, 75, 85%. But no one planned on becoming, them becoming 15. And I think that is what everybody is waking up to, that all of a sudden we have a lot more adolescents and young women. And we look at that as an advantage to sub-Saharan Africa. And I think empowered, vocal, leading young women are going to be transformative for the continent. What continues to be the biggest challenge in reaching this group? I mean, you just outlined a number of challenges. What's the biggest challenge? It's very segmented. Um, young women's lives evolve significantly between the age of 10 and 19. And I think really ensuring that you have a tailored program for a young urban adolescent versus a rural adolescent. And I think sometimes when you're doing public health programming, some people look at public health programming as meaning public health programming means public health, public one program for the public. And I think right. that doesn't work. And we've really learned that how much you have to segment the program and listen to the young women and put the young women at the center of a very much client-centered approach. I think that scares some people. I think that is the way forward. It's a way forward for governments um, to ensure that all individuals have the opportunity to remain healthy and educated. And I think that sometimes becomes challenging when people think about how difficult that could be. But we find young women actually lead us to the right place. And if we listen to them, we'll get the right things that that community of girls need. You've emphasized accountability in your time at PEPFAR. What have you done to ensure that PEPFAR's partners are accountable? Well, if you talk to our partners, they'll tell you I, may, I have too much accountability. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, all, I mean, everyone always says that. I think but, there's, but, there is yeah. two sides to that. 
The American people have invested almost $90 billion in this program. And I think with that comes a real responsibility to ensure that each of those dollars are meeting the needs of the people are serving. No one in America doesn't want the money to be spent. They want it to be spent well, though. And I think that's in order to demonstrate that the money is spent well, you have to have outcomes and impact. And I think that's the level of accountability we brought. It is not enough to say this person went on therapy. It's only enough to say that person is on therapy, maintained on therapy, and virally suppressed. And if they're not, it's our fault, not the client's fault. It's our fault that we haven't provided an environment and a place that they feel like they want to come back to. So I think it's really flipping the script to it is our responsibility to make sure that we have the outcomes. And then I think we really drove an analysis of impact by putting these comprehensive community-based surveys in the field through now University of Maryland and um, Columbia University through CDC. Those have been eye-opening. When you have data from a program, you know who you're serving by who has come. But you don't know who's not coming. And I think the surveys at the community level allow us very clearly to see who is not coming. And then it's on us to adjust our program to ensure that they also are receiving the services that they need. And I think that measurement of new infections, prevalence, and access to services has been a game changer for PEPFAR because now we know by clear four-year, five-year age bands who's in care, who's not in care, and why aren't they in care. What's happened to the countries that you singled out as you singled out seven that needed improvement last year? What's happened to the ones that you singled out and called out and said, you know, you guys need to get your act together and improve? You know, we don't do that lightly. One, because it's very disruptive to the team. Sure. But it also is extraordinarily stressful to us. Yeah. Yeah. I I have to be honest, it's a very stressful time. Stressful for them, it's stressful for us. And it creates, you know, a golf. Um, And we don't take that lightly. These are countries that have have struggled over three years despite increased resources. And which countries are these, just to name a couple? Well, one of them, I'll just use an example, was Tanzania. Right. Tanzania, though, immediately went back, went out to their sites and figured out what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. And Tanzania had a record-breaking last 12 months. It's amazing. I mean, record done by them. We didn't do it. We identified that there was a problem. They found out what the problem was, fixed the problem at the sites, and changed the ability for that program to meet the needs of the people we're serving. That's what it's about. So that's a real success they story. They did it. They did it. They're the ones that did it. Cameroon, today, this month, will have no more formal user fees. That is a huge breakthrough. That's an issue that we've worked on for 17 years in PEPFAR to eliminate formal and informal user fees because poor individuals, poor families could not access services because of the huge out-of-pocket expenses. And you're making mothers make a decision between food for their children versus drugs for them. That's an easy decision for a mom. Of course. It's food for the children. And so 50% of mothers were not under care in 
Cote d'Ivoire and Cameroon. And Cote d'Ivoire, Cameroon, Nigeria have all moved forward with eliminating, making informal user fees illegal and creating watchdogs and inspections to make sure that is occurring and then eliminating formal user fees. And that... That not only helps PEPFAR achieve what it needs to achieve, but it ensures the future of healthy children and young women because these are not only user fees for HIV, these are user fees for ANC and antenatal care. And I, I will tell you, many people tell us that these things aren't possible. And I've, I've been privileged to work on the continent for a long time. I don't find anything impossible. You don't seem like someone who finds anything impossible. No, it's not impossible. It's just, it may not be yes today, but we eventually get to yes. Right. That has to be the spirit of the whole program, right? It's the spirit of the program. Now, you're a diplomat, right? You're the ambassador. You're the health diplomacy lead. Yes. Um, you have a big wallet yes. in terms of your leverage on these 13 priority countries and others. Those that seem to be falling a little bit behind, you've got leverage, but you have to bring a, a pretty determined and artful form of diplomacy into the mix in order to get them focused and cooperating in new and different ways. H how do you go about doing this? I mean, you've, it seems to me, in your tenure, almost six years of heading up PEPFAR, you've put a much greater emphasis on you trying to exercise the use of our influence and our engagement in order to motivate countries to be more rigorous, more accountable, more performance-focused in the use of the funding that we're providing them, which yeah, is People complain about doctors' bedside manners. You have to be a physician who has, like, real diplomatic skills to pull this off. So what has that meant for you? The skills are—I mean, I, I will say it is not my skills. I provide a platform and often a, an arena for dialogue, but the people who are making this happen every day are our U.S. ambassadors and country, and they have been our secret sauce. They're the ones that go to presidents and prime ministers and across all the different ministries and carry the message of the policy changes that are needed. We don't ask for things that are not absolutely crucial for the care of their citizens. Um, we're not frivolous in our ass. Um, we are never asking with a USG hat on. We're asking from the standpoint, here's the data. Here's what we know can work because other countries have made it work. But here's the policy change that we need. And we need that policy change from the national level down to the site level. Country like Uganda with um, Minister Chang. She's the one who taught us and came to me because I've known her a long time and said, you know, Debbie, it doesn't help. You've been asking for these policy changes and they've made them. What you need to ask for is for them to send the circular to the sites. And I'm like, the circular <laughs> sites. I mean, this is I mean, we learn every day because if the policy is only at the national level, but the site doesn't get the circular that says this is the new policy, the policy doesn't change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we really, we are in constant dialogue with our ambassadors. And then I do have three or four times a year where I sit down with the ministers. And, you know, and I've known many of them for decades in different, you know, we kind of grew up together on the continent um, when they were health officers. I mean, basically health managers or district health officers, and now they're ministers of health. And they want to serve their citizens in their best way. And so together, 
together, we look at data and work out how to move forward. I will tell you that money doesn't always translate into, into impact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we've had to learn yeah. that in some cases, more resources help. And we've applied those resources. In some cases, it's very much of a policy dialogue. And the ambassadors, I have to say, in country and our deputy chief of missions, they're the ones that carry that water. And they're the ones that make that happen. And I think that quiet, continuous diplomacy that our U.S. ambassadors provide is what is making PEPFAR have these great successes over these last six years. I mean, we've doubled the number of people on treatment in a flat budget. We've quadrupled the number of people receiving um, circumcisions. We've launched DREAMS. We're doubling and increasing the, the DREAMS expenditures. That is all possible because of the ambassadors and our SCAC chairs who work with the countries and the program um, officers that we have, the PEPFAR program officers that work with the countries, together they create that team with the agencies that make this, make words translate into action. Let's talk about the International AIDS Conference. It'll be in Oakland, San Francisco in early July, right before, like a week before the Democratic Convention, five weeks before the Republican Convention. It's and during July the 4th. <laughs> July the 4th. Right. It, will be a, it will be a busy and active summer. Yes. Uh, there'll be uh, not just a focus on the international. There'll be a heightened focus on our own domestic uh, epidemic, given the steps that pre President Trump initiated State of the Union address last year, putting focus on ending the epidemic by 2030 in the United States, particularly in the South. This is going to be a contentious period, contentious elections. We're already in a very polarized and contentious setting right now. When you go to the conference, what is it that you want to try and accomplish there? What is the message you're going to try and convey to those assembled? And hopefully we will be very successful at winning quite positive media attention, yeah. which I wanted to bring to you because yes. I know that is That's a sensitive to topic yes. for everyone, yes. that it's the right kind of media <laughs> interest yeah. for this. Well, not actually, the any wrong media kind. interest would be good at this point <laughs> where HIV actually could be somewhere um, in the media again. I I think from my perspective, it's almost, it's a, it's a time always, IAS is always a time to really mm. reflect. And I think... I think the way IAS really conceptually looked at Oakland and San Francisco as, you know, really the tale of two cities. Um, and when you look at the progress in New York and New York State versus the South, really understanding why are we successful there and not here? And what is the difference? And I think we're hoping to bring that out. We'll have a PEPFAR pre-meeting. We're going to do that with our domestic colleagues and have a domestic global dialogue at each level of those critical elements from policymakers to really talk about what it means to lead at all of the different levels, including being mayors of small towns and what it means to provide a respectful, open, transparent environment where people can seek and receive services. I think the opioid epidemic has really increased our awareness, um, both of rural America, Southern America, other places that really have been left behind um, in care and in um, it, political policies. And I think bringing that all together to really understand and talk about resources are critical. 
science is critical, but if you don't have the political will from the local level up to the national level, we don't make progress. And I think that's really the tale of Ukraine versus Russia, Thailand versus Indonesia. I mean, you see this play out all over and over again. And I think what has really been exciting over the last decade is watch countries with new leadership like Angola really start to tackle their HIV mm -hmm. epidemic. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm extraordinarily optimistic about what is possible because we see what success looks like. I think it's on all of us to hold each other accountable to ensure that success is found everywhere and that there never becomes two tiers to the HIV response, that we remain together in ensuring that whether you're a key population or a young woman or frankly a man, because men have been left terribly behind in this epidemic, that we don't move forward as a community concerned about HIV unless we all move forward. And I think it does set the platform for countries who talk about UHC. UHC is not possible unless key populations are served. So countries that talk to me about universal health coverage and conveniently leave out mm -hmm. the LGBT community, that's, that's not UHC. And so I think, once again, the HIV AIDS field will be responsible for ensuring that truly no one is left behind, not only in the HIV AIDS agenda, but the UHC agenda and other primary care agendas and frankly, chronic disease agenda. These, you know, if men have been left out of the equation and don't see themselves in the healthcare delivery system, then you're not going to have the ability to deal with chronic disease. So. Can we talk a little bit about the history? Um, I mean, I've seen you in action in Amsterdam and Durban, you know, you're a force of nature at these conferences. You're every time I turn around, I'm I'm listening to you speaking at another gathering or another dimension of this. You were and you were at San Francisco in 1990, and I think for our listeners, reminding them of what happened, we're coming back 30 years later, reminding them of what that moment was like. Tell us a bit about what that was like. Okay, so remember, we didn't know what the virus was until 85, 86. We didn't have the serology until 86. We didn't have AZT until 88, DDI, DDC until 89, 90. So, and each of those... It was a very scary disease. It was scary because our patients were so late stage and we would get AZT and they would do well for several months and then they would have viral escape and then we would put them on AZT DDI, but they'd already escaped to AZT. And so we were doing essentially serial monotherapy um, and we could see that serial monotherapy was not working. And I think 1990, it was... So in 88, we're excited about the promise of treatment. And then we see our patients serially fail treatment. And I think we were so hopeful. The one thing that did come out of that, though, is prevention of mother-to-child transmission. So that was a huge breakthrough. But I think all of us, as President Bush realized, because he started with prevention of mother-to-child transmission very early into his first term administration and realized that having well babies with a mother that wasn't there to raise them was not going to lead to a successful outcome. 
And thus PEPFAR with its comprehensive approach was born. But I think each of these steps forward took us a little bit forward, but not to the place where we could see we needed to be. Mm-hmm. It was so contentious with political willingness to really address comprehensively the AIDS epidemic that we saw. This is 1990. Yeah. And very so it was turbulent, very, lots of protests. It was very tough. And I, you know, it was a very tough time in the military. You couldn't deploy if you were HIV positive. There was a question whether you could stay in. Um, we worked very hard to make sure our soldiers could stay in the military because at that time there wasn't guaranteed health insurance outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, people forget that there, I think it's really, we have some long-term um, survivors that represent that pre-heart period. I think in the United States, there may be 270, 300,000. I hope we hear from them because mm-hmm. they're in their 60s now. They sacrificed their entire young adulthood being the people that got the first cycle of drugs, the second cycle of drugs long before we had heart. They spent probably 50% or more of their times in clinics and hospitals. They never had a working life to really establish any kind of career, yet they are the ones that provided the information and the scientific evidence that ensures people thrive today. And I think we have to really be aware, and hopefully they will be there, and many from San Francisco and around the United States to remind all of us that they are the ones that created the future for others. And they, because they got serial monotherapy, they may not always have the same responses to the full ARVs that are available today, yet they are the ones that created the scientific future that we're all celebrating. So I think remembering, the HIV field is always about remembering those who have sacrificed so much so that we could be where we are today. Before you go, I want to ask you one last question about where we are today. You've brought a data-driven approach to PEPFAR. Tell us a little bit about that and how that's different than what's happened in the past. Well, PEPFAR always used data from Ambassador Tobias through Ambassador Dival through Ambassador Goosby, always focused on data. Ambassador Goosby um, developed gender-specific data, so part of that data 2x um, revolution to ensure that we both had data on women and data on men. We brought that to the next level to ensure that we had age band specific data. That has been eye-opening, both in the surveys and in the program data, because it was through that information that we can clearly see who we're missing. And that's been critical to the program because for many years, people said most of the children without treatment would be dead before they reached age five. Now we know that there are a lot of 12 and 14-year-olds who never got treated. Mm-hmm. We have to find them. That's our job. And that's that's what we take very seriously. We realize that even in the best countries with the best performance, they're missing over 40% of the men. And the men are presenting with late-stage disease. We have to figure out how to make a program that's exciting for a 25-year-old. That's hard in the United States to get yeah. 25-year-old men into the doctor. If they're sure. not having to do a physical to play on a football team, they often don't show up. So I think our job, um, and we can figure that out globally and bring that information back. That Those are our challenges. I think we use data to identify our gaps and our challenges, and we use data to make the changes and see if they're effective. 
Ambassador, thank you so much for your time today. We can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. It's always exciting to talk about HIV AIDS and AIDS 2020. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.